Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. And in this episode, we are going to go live on YouTube. So if you have a chance to head over to YouTube and watch the episode live, go right ahead. That's where it will be for right now. But after we're done here with the episode, I'll post the audio to all the uh, major streaming sites that you guys have been listening to. So it's just me recording today and I was thinking about recording last night, but I was just too tired after I got back from work and I was watching the uh, the 49ers and the Chargers game last night, which was actually a pretty compelling game between those two teams, but I would have started around like 1130 and midnight and I was just too exhausted after work to get that going. So I figure, you know, we start bright and early this morning, knock this episode out. I mean, guys, week 10 did not disappoint and we still have a Monday night game to get to but I have to say we saw some great games this past weekend we had a great game out in Germany it was the first game on Sunday with the Bucks and the Seahawks it was a great compelling match the Bucks bounce up to a 500 record after winning that game and then we obviously had the game of the year between the Vikings and the Bills there's no other way to describe it that game was just amazing and I'm glad that I was able to watch that game even though that I was at work I had that game on my phone and that game was just amazing there's just no other way to say that and then not only that we had a great game between the Cowboys and the Packers the Packers finally break their losing streak there's a really good chance that they could have went down to three and seven but they end up storing back in the fourth quarter they win in overtime they bump up to a four and six record so we'll definitely talk about that game Uh, after that uh, we'll basically talk about just the abysmal performance that we've seen from the Las Vegas Raiders this year they're sitting at a two and seven record they lost the Indianapolis Colts who have an interim coach by freaking Jeff Saturday who's never had any head coaching experience at either the collegiate level or at a professional level in the NFL yet Jeff Saturday was able to lead the Colts to a win on the road against the Raiders and we'll talk a little bit about that game in particular Uh, But I really want to focus on Josh McDaniels and what his status is going to be for the rest of the year because I think there has to be some questions about is he the right guy to lead the Raiders forward because I think it is safe to say that Josh McDaniels has really failed to keep this team competitive and they need to be in the AFC West. It's one of the most competitive divisions in the NFL and they have just played subpar football the entire year even though that they have some really decent pieces 
on their roster. So I'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll pretty much round out the episode with a little bit of UFC. Uh, this past weekend, we had a really solid card. Um, we had the Israel Adesanya fight between him and Pereira. We also had Dustin Poirier go up against Michael Chandler. So there will be uh, some fights that we'll go over. Obviously, you know, it was an action-packed weekend. So if you guys were able to watch any of these affairs this past weekend, uh, you definitely got to see some great games across the board. But I think, I think it's probably best if we start with the game of the year between the Vikings and the Bills. Uh, this game was phenomenal in no way. There's no way about it. Like this game lived up to the expectation um, that we hoped for, because when you look at the Bills and when you look at the Vikings, these are two of the best teams with the Bills being one of the best teams in the AFC and the Vikings being one of the best teams in the NFC. And just to kind of talk about the game a little bit, because I'll have my points about each team and how they're going to move forward after this game. But I'll be honest with you guys. When I was watching this game, at one point, the Bills were up 27 to 10. I mean, the Bills were running away with this game, and it didn't really seem like the Vikings had an answer offensively. It just Kirk Cousins in that first half really struggled, and even in parts of the third quarter, the Vikings just couldn't get anything moving consistently. And... You know, when I look back to how this game really kind of transpired in the second half, I would say that Dalvin Cook getting that 80-yard touchdown run really put the Vikings back into it because then it was only a 10-point game. It was really the first spark that we had seen from the Vikings pretty much the entire day outside of maybe some early points in the first quarter or the first half to be more specific. And then to be like when I look at the Bills specifically, I look back to when they were in the red zone and they were within the 10 yard line and they had an option to get some points for a field goal, extend the lead. They would have been at 30 points at that point had they gone for the field goal, but they decided to go for a touchdown. They tried to go for the kill shot against the Vikings and the Vikings held up. They were able to intercept it. I believe Patrick Peterson uh, intercepted that pass from Josh Allen and actually had a decent return after that. And then after that, just, the Vikings just kept chipping away bit by bit. And then, you know, just to really kind of focus on, I'd say probably the last couple of minutes of the fourth quarter. I mean, the Vikings, they had an impressive drive to put themselves in a position to, you know, essentially get the um, game tying touchdown. Actually, it was, it was the go ahead touchdown. I should say, I mean, that was the drive where Justin Jefferson arguably had one of the best catches I've ever seen. I think that that catch in particular is right alongside with what OBJ did against the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football about 10 years ago. It was an absolutely phenomenal catch. And what Justin Jefferson did, it was a fourth and 18. The circumstances for that play, I think, outrival what OBJ had because OBJ's touchdown was still, I would say, it wasn't consequential. I mean, it was a touchdown. But you know, this Justin Jefferson catch where he just snags it out of the defender's hands. It's a fourth and 18, and if they don't convert, the game's over. There's just no other way to say it. And Justin Jefferson comes down with the catch. They extend the drive, and they get to the one-yard line, and the Bills' defense has an amazing goal line stand. Kirk Cousins tries to sneak it in from the one-yard line. He gets stuffed at the half-yard line, and it looks as if the Bills are going to win this game, but 
you have to take into account the Bills are on the one-yard line, and they have to have an easy transition from the center to the quarterback just to be able to get some yards. And Josh Allen fumbles the ball on the snap, and the Vikings recover the ball in the end zone, and then it's 30-27. to And then I, I, I got to give Josh Allen credit because to be able to bounce back from that and to get that team within field goal range within 40 seconds was amazing because when you have a turnover like that that essentially could give the game away, that could derail the entire game. Yet they were able to remain focused and lead a really good drive to get them in the field goal range and tie the game to send the game into overtime. And then the overtime uh, possessions, and the Vikings had a great drive. The Vikings burned a bunch of clock in that overtime possession. I think, if I remember correctly, they burned at least five, six minutes, maybe even six and a half minutes on that drive. And they didn't really give Josh Allen and the Bills offense a lot of time to work with since the Vikings got a field goal to extend the lead to 33-30. to And then Josh Allen, kind of very similar to what he did at the end of the fourth quarter, was able to lead the Bills into position where they were in the red zone. And then Josh Allen forces a pass uh, into, I would say, I wouldn't say like double coverage, but it was, it seemed like a very tight window that he was trying to throw to. And Patrick Peterson ends up picking off the pass and the Vikings leave Buffalo eight and one, which is just absolutely phenomenal at this point, just because I'll be honest with you guys. I didn't expect it. I really thought that the bills were going to win this game, especially when Josh Allen was going to be starting in this game, because there was a little bit of concern of whether or not that he was actually going to be able to play this game because of his UCL injury in his uh, throwing elbow. But I'll be honest with you. When he stepped out on the field and when he was throwing passes, I I didn't see any issue uh, with his ability to be able to complete passes uh, in a consistent manner. He looked fine out there. Granted, he had some turnovers, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit later. But as far as I see it, you know, I thought Josh Allen looked fine. And... I thought that he was really going to be the reason why they were going to win that game. But this is where I kind of want to break it off, and I want to focus on each individual team here. So I'm going to start with the Vikings. The Vikings won the game first. So obviously, they get the uh, priority here. When I look at the Vikings this year, I've never really been too high on them, even though that they have a really good record. And the reason why is, is when the Vikings have been tested this year, Granted, they haven't been much. They have relatively struggled. When it came to the Eagles game, when they played them, I'd say probably a month and a half to two months ago, they struggled. And there's no other way to say about that. The Eagles dominated Kirk Cousins, uh, the Vikings offense, and their defense, respectively, quite easily, or I should say relatively easily. And then, you know, this was another test for the Vikings as far as I see it. Because, you know, the Bills are a top five team in the NFL where they were a top five team going into this game. And even though that the bills had what I would consider a bad loss against the jets last week, I was in the mindset that, you know, the bills would be able to, you know, bounce back from that loss against New York and really give the Vikings a tough battle at home after that loss last week. And the way that that game was going, it just seemed like Kirk cousins and that Vikings offense just could not get anything going consistently. Buffalo's defense has been riddled with injuries this year, but they've been able to really hone in on that next man up mentality. And by and large, they have some decent players in their secondary, despite the fact that they're star players. 
You know, you can look at Micah Hyde, for example. He's out for the rest of the year. They don't have him at their disposal. And yet, Buffalo's secondary was still able to make some key plays. They were able to intercept Kirk Cousins twice in that game. And yet, when I look at the Vikings this year, one thing that they've been able to do really well this year compared to years past is they know how to finish games. And this game was no exception. For them to come back from 27 to 10 and essentially win the game in the manner that they did is outright remarkable as far as I'm concerned because I really didn't expect the Vikings to win this game. I don't even think Kevin really expected them to win this game. I know he's not here, but he'd probably say something in a similar fashion. 27 to 10, and then to me, that Dalvin Cook touchdown really kind of changed the whole momentum because the Bills in the fourth quarter, this is where you give the Vikings defense a lot of credit. They stepped up. They definitely put the Bills in a position where they just weren't able to execute as effectively compared to the first half because the Bills were running and gunning in that first half. But the Bills relatively struggled in that fourth quarter, and that's when the Vikings made their move. And, and that was despite the fact that Justin Jefferson in the second half in large stretches was relatively locked down by the Bills' secondary. So they had to focus on you know, getting the ball to Dalvin Cook. TJ Hawkinson was definitely getting a bulk amount of targets in that game from Kirk Cousins. And then you had other guys. KJ Osborne stepped up. You had Adam Thielen here and there make some plays. But it was just a consistency. And then you know, if you look at the fourth quarter specifically, I mean, the, the Vikings outscored the Bills 13-3 in that quarter. You know, And that was despite the fact that the Bills were relatively winning the game in large stretches through the first three quarters. And it's really kind of been one thing that I've honed in on with the Vikings this year. They just know how to play in the fourth quarter. And like I said, this game was no exception. So, you know, when I look at the Vikings now, they're sitting at an 8-1 and record. I mean, they're right alongside the Eagles as far as the top spot in the NFC. And if the Eagles were to lose on Monday night, there's a very good chance that the Vikings could arguably be the best team in the NFL. You could definitely make a case for it. And just the kind just to kind of focus on the Vikings a little bit more, maybe with Kirk Cousins here. Thank God this was not a primetime game. Because when it comes to Kirk Cousins and primetime games, he's atrocious. There's no other way to say it. The record speaks for itself. And there are whole YouTube highlight reels. I really shouldn't even say highlight reels. They're more like low light reels. When it comes to Kirk Cousins in primetime games, this wasn't a primetime game. This was a one o'clock game. And despite the fact that he had some turnovers early in the game, he was able to bounce back and put the Vikings in position to be able to score points. And against a team like the Bills, I got to give him respect for that. And for him to lead that overtime drive to at least get some points on the board, it's better than nothing. Because in years past, Kirk Cousins might have made an errant pass that could have gotten picked off, and then it would have given the opposing team, a short field to work with to possibly win the game. That didn't happen. And Kirk Cousins was able to lead that Vikings offense effectively in that overtime period to be able to at least get some points on the board and then hope that the defense steps up and made a play. And that's exactly what they did. So all in all, when it comes to the Vikings, I give them a tremendous amount of credit for being able to go on the road against what I would consider were sizable odds because I don't think a lot of teams... Uh, would have went into Buffalo like that, especially after Buffalo had just lost uh, the week previously and won that game in the manner that they did. And, you know, for them to come back the way that they did and put up 33 points against that really solid Bills defense, got to give a tip of the cap to the Vikings. You know, 
They're running away with the NFC North right now. And t- as far as I see it, you could make a legitimate case that the Vikings are the best team in the NFC at this point. And really, if you really wanted to go to a larger extent, you could say that they are the best team in the NFL. But I would still kind of give that to the Eagles at this point, just because the Eagles haven't lost the game yet. But I got to say, congrats to the Vikings on a phenomenal win. This is definitely the game of the year as far as I've seen it. There have been some other games. That Chiefs and the Bills game was definitely one. Um, I'd have to say even the Cowboys and the Packers game, this game we'll get to later, uh, would definitely be in that discussion as well. But overall, the Vikings are just a solid team. And maybe that I could, maybe I'm kind of undercharacterizing them in that fashion. They're a really good team. Uh, they need to be respected. And as far as I see it, they play a full 60 minutes. They do not take their foot off the pedal. There may be times where they look inconsistent and they're just not executing as well as they should. But in that fourth quarter, if you're an opposing team going up against the Vikings, you got to play them the whole 60 minutes because they've really honed in on that fourth quarter and the second half to a larger extent this year. And they're winning those one possession games this year compared to years past where they were falling short. So this is a team to be reckoned with. And as far as I see it, I mean, we put out, I think we put out a, uh, like a YouTube short and a TikTok a couple of weeks ago saying whether or not that the Vikings were a dark horse team for being a Super Bowl contender this year. I think you have to definitely consider them in that conversation at this point, just because they're eight and one, they beat one of the best teams in the AFC and we'll see whether or not that they can continue that success for the rest of the year because they still got some really uh, competitive games down the stretch and we'll see whether or not that they could not only meet expectations, but if they can exceed expectations. So like I said, congrats to the Vikings. Great win against the Bills. Now let's transition to the Bills. So the Bills, they've lost two straight games here. And when I look at them specifically, I got to look at Josh Allen. Now, I'm of the mindset that Josh Allen definitely deserves some criticism here. But I am not going to crucify the guy. We didn't know whether he was either... We didn't even know if he was going to play this game, first of all. Just because you know that UCL injury that he suffered against the Jets last week... It was something that we had to monitor throughout the week. And even though that I was a little bit more optimistic that he was going to play in that game, nonetheless, his status was in question going into that Vikings game. And by and large, throughout that Vikings game yesterday, I thought that he was fine. I thought that he looked fine completing his passes. He still had zip on the, the ball. And, you know, basically until the third quarter, he looked fine. He was essentially one of the big reasons why the the Bills were looking as competitive as they did against the Vikings yesterday. And then I got to go to the fourth quarter. Josh Allen struggled in that fourth quarter once again. And I'm not going to say it's a consistent trend that we've seen, but you could look back to the Jets game last week. He relatively struggled in that second half against the Jets and had some turnovers. And in this game, it's exactly what happened. And what I look to kind of going into the second half here, I was of the mindset that, you know, Josh Allen definitely forced that pass uh, when they were in the red zone, they were going forward on fourth down. And then he ended up getting picked off by Patrick Peterson. That's not really his fault because as far as I'm concerned, I put a little bit more uh, liability on Sean McDermott, uh, Sean McDermott, excuse me, and the coaching staff for not settling for three points. They tried to go for the kill shot, which I can understand trying to be aggressive there but they should have went for the three points. 
And if you actually look how the game transpired after that, had they settled for the three points, let's just say for hypothetical purposes that they did that, they would have been at a 30-point margin, or they would have had 30 points at that point. And then had the game transpired exactly the way that it did, you know, the Bills with 40 seconds left, all they would have to do is just march down the field for a game-winning field goal instead of going down the field to tie the game. You know, there's a big difference between that. So it's one thing, you know, if you're having a game-winning drive compared to a game-tying drive. You know, you got to be, you have to really be on the money, you know, just to be able to tie the game to force it into overtime. But, you know, looking back at that situation, I thought that Sean McDermott and that coaching staff kind of blew it in that regard instead of, they should have went for the field goal instead of going for the touchdown. But that's neither here nor there. With Josh Allen, I respect the fact that he, you know, put his body out on the line yesterday and tried to get the Bills a win. And as far as I see it, he was playing effective football. It's just that fourth quarter, he just relatively struggled. And, you know, as far as I see it with him for the rest of the season, we have to focus on him when it comes to his overall effectiveness in the fourth quarter because the last two weeks, he's relatively struggled. But I don't believe that it's a trend yet. I believe that it's just decision-making. If he can improve his decision-making, you know, the last couple games of the year, I think the Bills are still going to be relatively a competitive team. And, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, the Bills were undeniably the number one team in our power ratings. And I think as it stands right now, they'd probably be outside of the top five just with them losing two games in a row. And even though that this was the game of the year, they were on the losing side of it. And, you know, I know a lot of people are going to focus on Josh Allen and his ineffectiveness late in the game. But I have to criticize the defense here. The defense gave up 33 points. This is not the same defense that we've seen the last couple of weeks. I mean, going into this game, the Bills were, without a doubt, the number one defense. And until really, I'd say, the fourth quarter, and maybe late stages of the third quarter, I mean, that Bills defense was humming. The Bills defense was getting turnovers. They were only limiting the Vikings to 10 points. And it just seemed like, the Bills were going to win that game relatively easily. I mean, they were up three possessions in that game. And then, to me, what changed the entire dynamic of that game was Dalvin Cook getting that 80-yard run. Once he got that, it just seems like the Bills' defense were on their heels the entire, I'd say, fourth quarter. I was going to say the second half, but really the fourth quarter to be specific. And, you know, when I look at that, one of the last drives that the Vikings had in the fourth quarter, fourth and 18, you have to get that stop. And I understand that Justin Jefferson made probably one of the best catches we'll ever see. But if you're the corner or if you're the defender, you got to make that play. Both of his hands are on that pass and he didn't catch it. And somehow Justin Jefferson was able to snag that pass away from him and extend the drive. That was a huge play. Had the Bills been able to knock down that pass, game's over. But they weren't able to execute the Vikings. Granted, they didn't score in that possession. But they got down to the one-yard line. And then that Vikings defense was able to pounce on a, a Bills fumble at the one-yard line. And then they were able to convert it into a touchdown. So, not, and not only that, you know, going into that overtime drive, they gave up a six-and-a-half-minute possession. Granted, they only settled for three points when it came to the Vikings. But that Bills defense, they just looked tired at that point and they just weren't able to execute the Vikings were able to execute enough to put points on the board but 
Man, for the Bills defense to give up 33 points in the manner that they did, especially giving up a bulk of those points in the second half, it's not a good look. Now, granted, I would say they played fine against the Jets last week because they only gave up 20 points. But to give up 33, especially at home, and you know after a tough loss against the Jets, you've got to be on your A game. And they just didn't do it in the second half. And I think that's really what dictated the outcome of the game. So, you know, when it comes to the Bills, the Bills are in third place in the AFC. Just two weeks ago, they were the number one seed in the AFC. And now that they've lost two games in a row, they are now third place because the, the freaking Jets and the freaking Dolphins have better records than them respectively. And the Jets own the tiebreaker over the Bills. So, I mean, it's really quite astounding that we're at this point with the Bills 10 weeks into the season. Now, I'm of the mindset that the Bills could be able to bounce back from this and still probably end up winning the AFC East, but they got to be on their P's and Q's from here on out because they can't afford to lose these really close games down the stretch. And if they do, they could find themselves in a wild card situation. And I mean, we'll see what happens with them moving forward. But as far as I see it, you know, the Bills really got to be on their A game here. They really got to be focused for the next, I would say, two months. Because if they don't, or if they just don't play up to their standard, they're going to be in some trouble. But I'm not going to say that they're, I'm not going to be in a gloom and doom uh, scenario here with the Bills. The Bills are still one of the best teams in the AFC as far as I see it. They've just had two bad games. And they've had them in back-to-back weeks. Uh, when at this point, I I think it's probably best to say that they could probably afford it at this point. But, you know, just going down the stretch, I mean, these are the games in November and December and maybe early parts of January where they got to make their strides here. And last two weeks that they faltered hasn't been a good look. So we'll see whether or not that the Bills could be able to bounce back from here on out. But overall, just to kind of round out the game here, a phenomenal game between the Vikings and the Bills. It lived up to expectations, and I hope that everybody got a chance to watch it because it was just a phenomenal game from beginning to end. And we'll just kind of leave that game for where it's at at this point. So with that said, we are going to transition to the Packers and the Cowboys game. And this was another phenomenal game that we saw this past weekend. And the Packers stabilize. If you're a Packers fan, you're probably thinking, thank God that they stabilized because, I mean, they were this close to losing six straight games. So, I mean, the Packers definitely needed this game just because, well, I've been on the mindset that their playoff chances are pretty much dead in the water at this point. And they would have been just completely dead in the water had they lost this game to the Cowboys. But they were able to rally in that fourth quarter to be able to force an overtime. And then... That Packers defense was able to get a stop against Dallas's offense in overtime. And then Aaron Rodgers was able to lead a drive for the Packers uh, to set them up for the game-winning field goal. And they did. So they won the game with a score of 31-28. to Like I said, the Packers moved to a 4-6 and record. Uh, the Cowboys bumped down to a 6-3 and record. Um, let's focus on the Packers here. Because uh, the Packers definitely need to be discussed simply just because they won the game. The Packers needed this win. There's no other way to say it. And Kevin and I, I know he's not here right now. We've already discussed that the Packers season is basically over as far as their playoff chances are concerned. Just because 
when you look at the landscape of the NFC, or actually, I'll just focus more on the NFC North, the Vikings are absolutely running away with that division. And it doesn't seem like the Packers are going to be able to be competitive in that capacity, just because I think the Vikings are probably going to win that division probably within the next couple of weeks or so. They could probably win that division probably by the first or second week in December, just with how effective that they've been. I mean, they're at an eight and one record and the Packers are sitting two games under 500. So unless the Vikings were to absolutely fall apart, the Packers aren't going to be going to be competitive in that division, but this is a game that they needed to win. And Aaron Rodgers stepped up because when you looked at that lions game last week, he was atrocious in that game. The Packers offense scored nine points. They weren't even able to get a touchdown against the Lions last week. And going up against a team like the Cowboys, man, they needed to be on their A game just because the Cowboys are one of the better teams in the NFC this year. And they are not a team to be trifled with. And yet, the Packers were able to do just enough to get by the Cowboys in this one. And when I look at this game specifically, I'll be honest with you. I really thought that once the Cowboys got it to a 28 to 14 margin, I just didn't think that the Packers were going to have enough firepower to be able to lead some drives to put points on the board. Yet I was wrong. And Aaron Rodgers was able to lead the offense effectively to not only get the margin down to a seven point deficit, but to eventually tie it, you know, in the later stages of the fourth quarter. And, you know, one of the best things that I could look at with Aaron Rodgers this week is that he didn't turn the ball over. You you look at that Lions game last week, he was turning the ball over left and right. You know, he's had an, abnormal amount of interceptions this year compared to some of his MVP seasons that we've seen just in the last couple of years. But this definitely seemed like more of a vintage type game from Aaron Rodgers. He definitely looked a lot more comfortable in this game compared to those games where they were losing five in a row. And, you know, not only that, you know, for them to be able to get a stop defensively in overtime against the Cowboys, um, that was huge. And then Aaron Rodgers did his thing in that overtime position to just get them in the field goal range and get them the win. So, you know, when I look at the Packers right here, the Packers are still a team that we should at least be aware of. We should still keep our eyes on them simply just because it is Aaron Rodgers. He's one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history. And we need to see if he could really start exceeding expectations for the rest of the year. Because as far as I see it, they still got a long way to go even be even to be competitive in some sort of playoff chance scenario. I'm of the mindset that the hole is too deep to dig out of at this point. If they can, it's going to have to be on the back of Aaron Rodgers and the defense is going to have to step up to make turnovers because that's what the defense was able to do yesterday against the Cowboys. Honestly, you know, that's what kept them in it as far as I'm concerned. They were able to force some turnovers against Dak Prescott and that Cowboys offense. And that, to me, dictated the outcome of the game just from the defensive side because... Had the Packers not gotten those turnovers, I mean, I'm of the mindset that the Cowboys could have put up 40 points in that game just because, I mean, that Cowboys offense was humming in large stretches in that second half. The first half was competitive. I was really kind of a back and forth affair in the first half, but that second half, the Cowboys really got into rhythm. They could not, when I talk about they, I'm talking about the Packers defense. The Packers defense could not contain CeeDee Lamb yesterday in any way, shape, or form. He was by far and away... Uh, the best receiver for the Cowboys yesterday. And he showed it. He had two touchdowns, had over 100 yards receiving. And no matter what sort of defensive package that the Packers presented the Cowboys, they just couldn't slow him down. And not only that, 
I thought Tony Pollard was extremely effective yesterday, not only in the running game for Dallas, but in the passing game as well. He was able to get a couple of receptions and pick up some extra yards for their for their offense. But, you know, just to kind of round it back to the Packers here, that Packers defense stepped up when they needed to to be able to keep that Packers offense in a position where they could at least try to tie the game. So there were some drives by the Cowboys in that fourth quarter where they could have essentially put you know the nail in the coffin for the Packers, but they just weren't able to execute. And that's where you got to give a lot of credit to that Packers defense for being able to step up in the manner that they did to be able to at least keep themselves in the game. And, you know, when it comes to the Packers, the Packers do not have a lot of wiggle room here. They have to be essentially pinpoint to be able to win these games just because, you know, when, when I look at the offense, they've really had their struggles this year. And this is probably one of the first games that they've had, I'd say probably in the last month and a half, where they've looked like the Packers offense of old and they were able to put up 30 points on the board. So, you know, it's a lot of credit to them. But, I mean, just to kind of round out the Packers part here, the, the Packers really got to be on their A game for the rest of the year. They cannot afford to lose games that they just simply can't lose. Or they uh, let me rephrase that. They can't afford to lose games where they should be able to win those games effectively because they've dropped some games this year where they should have won. And, you know, we got two months left in the season. We'll see whether or not they could really get on some sort of hot streak here. I'm still a little bit pessimistic about them just because their chemistry issues offensively have been just too consistent this year. Maybe this is a turning point for them. Maybe they just needed this win against the Cowboys to get themselves a spark. And we'll see whether or not that it can transition into winning, you know, three, four, five games in a row. But I'm still very heavily pessimistic about the Packers. I need I need to see more consistency from them on the offensive side of the ball. And their defense, the defense has really been the one thing that's kept them in it this year. And as long as they're able to force turnovers, get that ball back to Aaron Rodgers in the offense, it gives themselves a chance. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. But a great win for the Packers. They definitely needed it. And we'll see whether or not that they can continue it for the second half of the season. There's a lot of ground for them to catch up. We'll see whether or not they, they can possibly get back into some sort of playoff type scenario here. But with that said, we are going to transition to uh, the game that took place in Munich on Sunday. So this game was in Munich, Germany. It featured the Seahawks and the Bucks, And the Bucks were able to be victorious in that game. Uh, they won that game by the score of 21-16. to 16. Uh, this was a very competitive match as well. Um, it really seemed like the Bucks were going to run away with this game. Because at one point, it was 21-3 to in favor of the Bucks, And, you know, it seemed like the Bucks were finally starting to get into a rhythm offensively. It didn't seem like last week where the Bucks offense just couldn't get anything going against the Rams until essentially 45 seconds left in the fourth quarter where Brady was able to lead a game-winning touchdown drive where he threw the game-winning touchdown pass to Kate Otten to essentially give them the win. It just seemed as if the Bucks' offense just looked more in rhythm this week. And, you know, not only that, you know, they made a huge emphasis on running the football here. And I'd say if you're a Bucks fan, it was probably about time that you see the Bucks run the ball effectively because the Bucks' offense, especially when it comes to their run game, has been atrocious this year. They are one of the worst teams, if not the worst team in the NFL when it comes to running the football. I think looking back at their average for how many rushing yards they get per game, I think it's in the 60s. I might be wrong in the number. You know, People could fact check me if they want to. 
But overall, nobody is scared of that rushing attack by the Bucks. Yet the Bucks did an effective job running the ball against the Seahawks. And the Seahawks defense has actually been somewhat decent this year, but they just could not stop the run. And it didn't really matter who the Bucks had featured in their running back core to run the ball. It could have been Leonard Fournette. It could have been White out of the backfield. Didn't matter. The Bucs were able to get decent chunks consistently throughout that game. And you tie that into the fact that I thought Brady looked like Brady. He was very consistent yesterday. And outside of the one turnover that he had late in the fourth quarter, that was just an underthrown pass as far as I see it. He just didn't see the linebacker uh, crossing over the middle of the field. I thought Brady looked fine. He was able to connect with a multitude of targets. You know, this wasn't a game where he was only, you know, looking at maybe at two or three receivers or maybe a tight end. I mean, he was distributing the ball quite effectively yesterday. He got Scotty Miller involved. Kate Otten was involved. Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Julio Jones. All of those guys were definitely playing up to snuff, and they were able to, you know, make some great plays. Julio Jones had a great touchdown uh, catch, and not only that, he had a great run that led to the touchdown um, early in the game. Um, I thought Chris Godwin was definitely getting more involved. He definitely seems to kind of be getting more in a rhythm since recovering from the ACL injury that he suffered back in January um, this past season. And it just seems from an offensive perspective, maybe the Bucs are finally starting to find some rhythm. And they definitely need to because for the first half of the year, they've relatively struggled offensively. This is not the Bucks' offense that we've seen from the last two years, one of them being a Super Bowl contending team and then one that just fell short in the NFC Divisional round last year against the Rams. So it definitely seems like the Bucks may be rounding a corner offensively because as far as I see it, their defense has played up to snuff the entire season. You could take the one Chiefs game as maybe an aberration. You're playing against the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. If you get torched, you get torched. It happens to the best of them. But man, I thought that that Bucks defense was able to really slow down that Seahawks offense for large stretches. And it really wasn't until I'd say the fourth quarter where the Seahawks made a legitimate chant, a legit, a, let me get this right, a legitimate comeback to put themselves in a position to be able to score points. So, you know, and, and not only that, I thought the Bucks defense, um, they were able, if I had to say one possession that really kind of stood out to me uh, to focus on the Seahawks here, they had a drive into the red zone in the second half. And Geno Smith is in the pocket. He tries to bounce out of the pocket. And then he ends up getting strip sacked. And the Bucks pounce on it to recover the football. To me, that possession flipped the entire... Well, I wouldn't say flipped the entire game. It just really kind of went to show how much effort that the Seahawks were giving. It just wasn't leading to points. Because the Seahawks were able to move the ball up and down the field during stretches in that game. But just a turnover here or... You know, not executing on a third down to extend a drive. That was just a consistent feature throughout the game for the Seahawks until the fourth quarter where they made a legitimate push. But then, you know, you look at what the Bucs did offensively at the end of the game. You know, after that interception that Brady had, you know, Brady was able to lead a drive where he was able to extend um, the drive by converting on some third downs or not even that, just, you know, getting a first down on second down. And, you know, when you have that at your disposal, and you're just executing at that level, especially when you need to at the end of the game. If you're the Seahawks defense, you had your opportunities there, and you just fell a little bit short in that regard. But uh, just to kind of round it with the Bucks here, the Bucks are sitting at a 5-5. Five and five. They're going into a bye week, and honestly, 
I think that they're a team that could probably use a buy. They're going into a buy on a high note. They're sitting at a five and five record. They're still the number one team in the NFC South as far as I see it, simply just because the Falcons are just not a team to be trusted with when it comes to being in a competitive space. It's just not a team that I would reckon that's really going to outpace the Bucs here for the rest of the year. But, you know, it seems as if the Bucs may be rounding into form. And we'll see what happens with them for the second half of the year. But they're in a good space right now. We'll see whether or not they, they could be able to um, possibly get a three, maybe even a four-game winning streak down the stretch because they definitely need to, I'm speaking for them here, they definitely need to separate some ground between them and the rest of the NFC South if they want to be a more competitive team uh, to be respected in the NFC as far as I see it. So we'll leave the uh, the Bucks part aside, and then we're going to focus on the Seahawks here. The Seahawks had their chances in this game. There's no other way to say it. I mean, they only lost by five points. Uh, they were definitely competitive, but man, I look back to that first half, and you could even say a decent part of the third quarter. They just weren't consistent, not in the offensive side and the defensive side. So it was really a well-rounded uh, failure in that regard. And I've said it time and time again, the Seahawks have been one of the biggest, and I'd say one of the best surprises that we've seen in the NFL this year, with Geno Smith probably being one of the comeback player of the year nominees. Pete Carroll definitely being a coach of the year nominee as far as I see it. But you know, this was definitely a test for them. And I thought that they looked like they were being outcompeted head and shoulders compared to the Bucs early in that game. But I got to give the Seahawks credit. They were able to bounce back in that second half and at least give themselves a chance to win that game. So when it came to the fourth quarter specifically, I really thought that Geno Smith and that offense, they finally got their act together. And maybe it was just because the Bucs were up 21 to three. They felt like they had a comfortable lead and maybe they took their foot off the pedal defensively. But the Seahawks took advantage of what the Bucs were giving them defensively and they were able to lead some drives. And they put themselves in a position to get it to a one possession game and all they needed was a defensive stop to get themselves a chance to be able to lead a game-winning drive for Geno Smith and that offense. And they just fell short in that regard. The defense was not able to slow down uh, the Bucks' rushing attack, which that's really kind of one of the main takeaways from this defensive performance from the Seahawks. They just could not stop the run. And the fact that they weren't able to stop the run against one of the worst teams in running the ball with the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers are not a viable team when it comes to running the ball this year. Um, their stats speak for themselves. They can only rush the ball for 60 to 65 yards a game, and they've largely relied on Brady to be able to lead the offense here. And the fact that the Seahawks gave up as many rushing yards as they did yesterday, that was a major disappointment uh, if you're looking at it from a Seahawks perspective. But, you know, it comes with the territory. I think they were probably banking on trying to slow down the game or slow down the run game and then maybe have Tom try to beat you. But, you know, the Bucs were able to get a balanced offensive attack, which is something that I don't think the Seahawks planned for. I think they were trying to focus on slow the run game down and then let Brady throw the ball 50 times. But, you know, when you give up the amount of rushing yards that you did to Leonard Fournette and White out of the backfield with the Bucs, you know, the Seahawks weren't able to stop drives for the Bucs and, you know, the, the Bucs were able to chew up some clock throughout the game and then end up getting some points on top of that. 
it's just, you know, when it comes to Seattle here, I really thought that their defense kind of let them down. They only gave up 21 points, though. So it's not as if that, you know, they put themselves in a position where they were just completely out of it. They were definitely in the game. It's just, I look back to the offense and not being able to step up in moments where they needed to execute. And to me, when it came to the Seattle Seahawks, there was a drive in the second half where they were in the red zone and Geno Smith is trying to pass the ball. He tries to escape out of the pocket and he ends up getting stripped and the Bucs recover it. I thought that was a blow to the Seahawks because at least Seattle would have gotten three points minimum out of that. But the worst case scenario happened and they ended up giving the ball back to the Bucs without any points on the board in their favor. And it just seemed as if they were playing catch-up the entire day. You know, being down 18 points, it's a three-possession game, and you're trying to make that up in the fourth quarter, essentially. It's just not going to work out in your favor. So they fall a little bit short. But look, when it comes to the Seahawks this year, they're a team that we still need to take uh, seriously here as far as I see it. Um, they got to be careful, though, because, you know, if you look at the 49ers, the 49ers are the one team that they're going to have to contend with down the stretch here because, you know, when it comes to the Rams, they're not a team to worry about. The Rams are just too inconsistent this year. The same goes with the Cardinals. I just haven't seen a lot of consistency from them this year. But if Seattle is careful, they got to play up to snuff against the 49ers because the 49ers, are, I really think they're the only team that are going to be able to catch up to Seattle in the NFC West this year. But, you know, when it comes to Seattle... We just got to see how they play down the stretch. And if they could be able to win some of these competitive matches that they have on their slate for the next two months, I think they'll at least put themselves in a position to be able to win the NFC West. And then we'll see what happens if they get to the playoffs. Anything can happen. And they can definitely play spoiler against any team that they go up against. So um, tough loss against the Bucs. Uh, probably a game that they could have won. There, there were definitely some plays that they left out on the field. But all in all, I wouldn't say it's all doom and gloom in Seattle. They're definitely a team to contend with down the stretch. Just a couple plays here and there. If they were able to execute, it could have dictated the outcome of the game. But, you know, fortunately for Seattle, they fall back in this one. And we'll see whether or not that they can bounce back going into next week. So with that said, we will transition into our next segment. And that is going to be the Colts game. And just to kind of focus on the Colts here, I'll, I'll talk about the Colts here simply just because... This is Kevin's team, but I really I, I really want to focus on Josh McDaniels. Uh, that'll really kind of be someone that I focus on after because we definitely need to focus on the Raiders just because the Raiders are a tire fire. But no, we'll talk a little bit about the Colts here. Uh, the Colts had probably one of the more inspiring performances that I saw this past weekend. Jeff Saturday is their new interim head coach, and the Colts were able to win his first game, which... I thought was phenomenal. And really, like when it comes to the Colts this past week, it, it's been unstable to say the least. I'm probably putting it mildly there. Um, there were a lot of people that were, I think, upset or angry about the situation uh, that led uh, to the firing of Frank Reich. I don't think people were, I don't think Colts fans were mad about Frank Reich being, being fired. I think it was about time that that happened. But, you know, for Jeff Saturday to get the position of being head coach, I think people were legitimately angry about the situation of, you know, looking for a coach outside of uh, the team instead of looking internally. But, you know, to put that aside, game had to be played. And, you know, going on the road 
to play the Raiders after the Colts just got their asses kicked by the Patriots last week. For them to be able to turn it around and get a win against a Raiders team that is subpar, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The Raiders have been one of the most underwhelming teams this year. But the fact that they were able to get a win, I got to give kudos to Jeff Saturday and the Colts as a whole. They were able to just lead effective drives. Jonathan Taylor was finally healthy to play in this game, and he was a beast in this game. He got over 20 carries. I know Kev's probably over the moon about the fact that he got over 20 carries, and he was extremely effective. Had a nice touchdown run as well. But not only that, you know, Matt Ryan, in the capacity that he's been in this year, has relatively struggled. But yesterday, I thought he played well. You know, he was able to extend some drives. He was able to even have some nice rushes. He had one run in particular where he ran for almost 35 yards. And, you know, being able to put up points on the board, it's a big thing. You've got to be able to put up points on the board, especially in a road environment where, you know, even though the Raiders, let's just flat out say it, they suck this year. I didn't think that the Colts were going to be able to win that game. Just with all the circumstances leading into that game, I, I thought the Raiders would be able to win that game. But I got to give credit where credit is due. The Colts were able to go on the road and basically flip the narrative from just a week ago in their favor. So we'll see what happens with the Colts for the rest of the year. Obviously, I think that Jeff Saturday probably is going to be someone that's going to be heavily scrutinized if the Colts really falter down the stretch here. But I got to say, one weekend, it definitely could be worse. So, And for them to leave Vegas with a win, I think that was probably best case scenario uh, for the Colts. So good on Jeff Saturday for getting his first win as an NFL head coach. And to the Colts, for you know, for the for them to basically just round out the narrative of them getting absolutely smashed by the Patriots a week before to going on the road and beating the Raiders, I mean, really kind of gone has it really has gone full circle in that regard, and we'll see whether or not that they could be able to at least try to build on this performance going into next week. So we'll just kind of leave the Colts there for where it's at, and then we got to focus on the Raiders here. We got to focus on Josh McDaniels. I was of the mindset maybe a week or two ago. Remember, Kevin and I, we kind of had this discussion about Josh McDaniels and whether or not that he was the right coach to lead the Raiders. I'm starting to have my doubts. When I look at the Raiders, I understand that they're playing in a very competitive division. You know, you're going up against teams like the freaking Chiefs, the Chargers, and the Broncos. It's a tough division to play in. But to look at the Raiders' roster, this roster is not bad in any way shape or form they have the requisite pieces to be able to go out there and win football games and they just haven't this year and really when i look at the raiders this year the one thing that they've struggled in is they just cannot win these one possession games and no matter who they're going up against they have failed in that regard they've won two games this year they've won two games this year it's just it's absolutely astonishing how subpar the they've played this year to say it's been an underwhelming season from the Raiders is an understatement. And I don't really know what to focus it on here. Is it the offense? Is it the defense? Is it the coaching staff? I think it's a little bit of everything. There have been times where Derek Carr and the offense, they just haven't been able to execute. There have been times where the defense has just been giving up points left and right. The coaching staff is not making the right play calls at really crucial times of the game. 
it's just when you kind of put all these elements together, you put all these components together, you have the season that you have. And as far as I see it, when it comes to the Raiders losing to the Colts, who have an interim head coach by Jeff Saturday, who has never coached an NFL game prior to this, or even in any sort of collegiate space, and for them to lose that game, I think it's unacceptable. Now, I don't think this is a situation where, you know, you're in a situation like the Colts last week where they fired Frank Reich and then they went to their interim head coach right after that. But I'm be very honest here. Josh McDaniels is definitely on the hot seat here. And I think to say that he's not is not looking at reality correctly because it's one thing to be competitive and, you know, you're at a four and four and five record or maybe a 500 record. It's just, you're just losing some close games and you're just not able to get some wins to get over 500. But they're sitting at two and seven. To say that this year from the Raiders has been a disappointment is, I don't even know how to phrase it. Like, it's been an understatement. So, I, I just, I can't get over the fact that they lost to the Colts yesterday. That was a terrible loss as far as I'm concerned. I agree that they've had some tough losses this year. But this one, I think it goes right to the top because the Colts have had so many issues this year not just offensively, but just the issues that they've had in their coaching personnel have been so critical for the fact that the Colts were able to bounce back in the manner that they did from getting their asses kicked by the Patriots last week to beating the Raiders this week. I mean, that that's a direct indictment on Josh McDaniels. And I say he's got a very short lease as far as I see it for the rest of the year because if the Raiders continue on this downward trajectory, granted, I don't know if they're going to be able to get back to a 500 record. That would be a miracle at this point if they were able to. But if they consistently lose games in this manner, there could be a very good chance that Josh McDaniels gets fired after this season. And I'm of the mindset that you have to be a little bit patient when it comes to a new head coach. But the writing might already be on the wall. You know, it'd be one thing if they were 5-5 five and five or 4-5. and five. But they're sitting at two and seven. Their season is over. Like there's no playoff hopes here. And this is coming after a year where, let's be honest, the Raiders last year went through a bunch of adversity internally, and yet they were still able to make the playoffs. I mean, you had the Henry Ruggs situation, you had the John Gruden situation, and they were still able to make the playoffs. And this year, with pretty much most of the core intact, and then you added Devontae Adams on top of it. Two games you've won? Two games? It's just unacceptable as far as I see it. So the way that I see it down the stretch is Josh McDaniels is going to have to be on his A game when it comes to his game plan because if he's not, they're in some real trouble, not just with the Raiders, but he's in some, he's in some trouble in whether or not that he's going to be able to retain his job after this season. And I think it's safe to say that he, he could lose his job. I'd say it's 50-50 that he loses his job. You know, I was in the mindset maybe a week ago that it was like a 75% chance that he'd be able to hold on to his job. Now that it's 50-50, it's, he's, in some dicey, he's in some dicey territory, to say the least. And we'll just see whether or not that the Raiders can be able to bounce back. And I'm very pessimistic of that right now. And Josh is going to have to ride this team somehow because I just don't know if he's going to be able to do it. So we'll leave that for where it's at. And then we're going to focus on our last segment here, which is going to be UFC 281. 
I thought UFC 281 lived up to expectations. I thought the main card was phenomenal. I think looking back at this card specifically, I think this was a record-setting card with how many uh, knockouts or TKOs that there were. So essentially finishes uh, that we've seen. And I think if I remember correctly, I think this whole card, I think it had eight to nine finishes. I may have the number wrong, but despite the fact that they were, I mean, it was an absolutely phenomenal card as far as finishes and knockouts were concerned. So if that's what you're looking for, that's what you got in this UFC card. So, I mean, just to kind of focus on some of the bigger fights here, um, I thought the Dustin Poirier fight and the Michael Chandler fight lived up to expectations. This thing was an absolute battle. And it really looked as if Michael Chandler was getting the best of Dustin early on. It just seemed as if, you know, that. Uh, let me break it down to you like this. I thought that Michael Chandler really won like the first half of the first round. And then I thought Dustin Poirier really put on a clinic in the last minute to minute and a half of the first round. Because it was really just a back and forth battle in that first round. And then going into the second round, man, I thought Michael Chandler dominated that round. It's just simply just because Michael was able to get a early takedown. And then he was able to just keep Dustin on his back and really maintain ground control for the entire second round. So there's no doubt in my mind that Chandler won that second round quite convincingly. And then in the third round, it was just kind of back to that first round type of mentality. It just seems like an outright war. And I got to say, I got to give Dustin a lot of credit for being able to get a takedown against Michael Chandler and then to be able to get a rear naked choke against M Michael Chandler, you know, for Michael to end up tapping out. Got to give credit to Dustin in that one. I'm not going to say it came easy because, man, these guys were in an outright war, like I said earlier. And it really seemed as if the fight was going to go in Chandler's direction. But that third round, it was just Dustin all the way. And, you know, for him to get the tap with how chaotic that that fight was, I got to give him a lot of credit. So, you know, when it comes to that division, I mean, that division is going to be a tough one just because that lightweight division, I think, is going to be owned by Islam Makachev for the foreseeable future until he retires or if somebody's be. Or somebody's able to beat that Dagestan type of wrestling. And as far as I see it, no one's been able to handle Islam in any way, shape, or form. I mean, he got Charles Oliveira to tap in the second round. And we don't know whether or not that anybody can really kind of live up to that expectation of being able to beat Makachev in that capacity. And Dustin's already gone up against that type of fighting before in Khabib. And Khabib dominated him. So... It'd be interesting to see whether or not that Dustin gets a crack at Islam. It'd be an interesting fight, but I think Islam would win that pretty convincingly. But still, give Dustin a lot of credit. Dustin was able to really weather the storm in those first two rounds and really make a gigantic push in that third round and to be able to get the tap from Chandler at the end of it. Kudos to him, bro. Got to give a tip of the cap to him. And then to focus on the Israel Adesanya fight and the, I think they get the, get the guy's name right, Alex Pereira. Um, this was kind of a fight very similar to what we've seen in the kickboxing fights that we've seen between Israel Adesanya and Alex Pereira. I would say that Israel Adesanya pretty much had that fight won. And then going to the fifth round, man, I got to say, Pereira was able to get Izzy in some trouble. And I mean, to really kind of focus on that fifth round, I mean, Izzy's back was on the wall uh, and Pereira was just raining down shots. 
And I will say this, you know, I was looking at the footage of it. I didn't think that Izzy was out. You know, I don't think he was, um, when I mean knocked out, it's not like to the point where he's on his back and he's dazed and confused and has no idea where he is. No, he was, he was taking shots, but he was mostly in a defensive position. It's just that Pereira was just raining down shots and Izzy really wasn't doing anything uh, to get out of it. But, you know, the ref called a stoppage and Pereira ended up, ended up winning the fight. But, you know, to, to look at Izzy, I mean, this was a fight the way that I saw it was I thought that Izzy was going to be essentially the winner in this one. And it's kind of funny because when I look at Israel Adesanya cards, they're not typically ones that I look to with great anticipation just because Izzy's a great fighter. Izzy's able to get some good shots in there, but he plays great defense. And in this one, I thought it was going to basically be that same thing. And then in the, the fifth round, his defense kind of let him down. But it was really just credit to prayer to be able to land some shots and essentially just rain down shots to the point where the ref called a stop to the fight and prayer is the new champ for the middleweight division. So, I mean, all credit goes uh, to Alex Pereira in that fight. I don't think Israel Adesanya is done. The guy's only lost two fights in his MMA career. This is his first loss in the middleweight division. And as far as I see it, I think that Izzy could definitely get that belt back if he wants to. I mean, Izzy's still in the prime of his career as far as I see it. And, you know, this was just an unfortunate loss for him. But all in all, great win for Pereira. And, you know, that pretty much rounds out uh, UFC 281. Um, it was a great card. If you guys got a chance to see it, I hope you guys enjoyed it because it was definitely worth watching. But with that said, you guys that are wrapping up from here, um, you know, doing this one solo, uh, it's always kind of a challenge for me just because, it's very easy for Kevin and I just to go back and forth. We we tend to just make it more like a conversation uh, whenever we record together. But no, it, guys, like this was a fantastic weekend of sports. And if you guys were able to watch it, um, I don't think it failed your expectations in any way, shape, or form. So it was just really, I was just glad I was able to, to witness a lot of it this past weekend. And um, hopefully the same continues going into next weekend. So um just to kind of give you guys an outlook for the rest of the week, we'll have content rolling throughout the week. Kevin will be back for our next episode on Friday when it releases, so definitely stay tuned out for that. And, um, you know, I say it at the end of each episode. Um, if you guys listen to us on Apple Podcasts, all the streaming platforms um, in the audio realm, we definitely appreciate you. If you're able to watch us on YouTube, we definitely appreciate you guys tuning in. I know this was a live one, so if you guys enjoyed it, definitely appreciate that. And, um, you know, with that said, um, just expect to expect the content to keep rolling out throughout the week. And um, we'll be back on Friday with another episode for you guys. So with that said, thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you guys later. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. 
welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. 